even though I feel like everybody should know who Mike Hurley is, because I've enjoyed listening to him for so long, I should still give you a proper introduction. Anyway, first, hello, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. I'm saying that I, I realized I didn't do this for MKBHD. I kind of realized, I was thinking like, everybody knows who he is. He's a mega celebrity, so I don't need to give him an introduction. Mm-hmm. But I still should, because you know, some people don't watch tech videos or listen to tech podcasts. Well, there is that thing where it's like, this person needs no introduction. And I think <laughs> that like Marquez can get away with that. Yeah. I feel like he was he may be the one that you could get away with. Well, and in the podcasting world, I, I would say you're on your way there. Uh, you host many of my favorite shows, including Upgrade, Connected, Cortex, and uh, your newest one, Playing for Fun, which uh, just trying to make video games fun again. Yeah. I've been listening to you for a long time, and so I'm really glad to Thank talk you. to you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So recently you were in Canada. That's a fun place to start because we got to meet in, <laughs> in person. Yeah. Our first time uh, mm-hmm. talking was actually face to face, which is weird because you live in London. So how was the trip? The trip itself was wild. It was part of a tour that I was doing. We did shows in Chicago, New York, and in Toronto. It was like three different shows, three different dates. Um, I ended up staying in Toronto for longer than I planned because Apple had an iPad event. And I was actually scheduled to be flying during the event, which is mm. not good for my overall business. I need to be able to record shows on those days. Uh, so I stayed around for a couple of extra days, but was mostly confined to hotel rooms editing and recording podcasts. But uh, I had a great time overall. Does that end up being a lot of your travel is sitting in front of a microphone? Like, Because your work is still very mm. at a computer and you need to be somewhere quiet as well. Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I, as well, a lot of my travel is related to my work in some way, you know, going to conferences and stuff like that, but spending time with other hosts and of the shows that I do. So we tend to just record our shows in person. We've gotten pretty good at hotel room audio at this point. Like there there are some tricks, you know, like different types of equipment that you can use and knowing to turn off the air conditioning and trying your best to get late checkouts, all of this stuff, it all contributes to hotel room podcasting. Well or my tricks are big piles of pillows. Like I empty the bed and put them all behind the desk and then I talk as close to them as I can. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely had to do it too. And it, it can be tricky. The, or the biggest trick can be making their Wi-Fi acceptable enough for a Skype call if you're, uh, if you're doing something remote. Yeah. The Wi-Fi thing is, uh, is always tricky. It's never, it, you can never know what you're going to get, really. Oh, man, totally. Well, so the event was for iPad Pros, right? It sure was. Which is right up your alley. Mm-hmm. You, for anybody that hasn't listened to your shows, you are uh, one of the people that actually uses an iPad for work, the, the mythical iPad worker who actually gets things done. And uh, do you follow Jonathan Morrison on YouTube at all? I most certainly do. He's He is holding quite a torch for iPad workers at the moment. Oh, no kidding. There's been an amazing series. I mean, I, I, call a, I try to send people to Jonathan anytime I can because he just does such great work. Mm-hmm. And his stuff on the iPad has been showing how you can produce really legitimate music and uh he's doing some uh, video editing and some video too yeah yeah, just kind of everything on the ipad yeah what i like about what jonathan's doing is he's he's going like above and beyond to what i do so like it's probably worth like clarifying that I, i kind of have two parts of my job i record and produce podcasts but i also run a podcast network and uh, sell ads and, and work with like 40 different hosts. It's like a big, you know, that's, that's the other part of my job. That was what I missed out in your intro is that you're the co-founder of Real AFM. I didn't get to that note. There you go. <laughs> it's, this is just, we're still in the intro. Yeah. Uh, it, that's kind of the other part of my job. And that's what happens on an iPad. So all of my show preparation, um, all of my research, emails, coordinating with people via Slack, writing advertising copy, all of that stuff is happening on an iPad, but I produce my audio um, and edit my audio on a Mac because right now, kind of just dealing with a lot of audio input stuff that you tend to need for podcasting isn't kind of where it should be right now. It's not where you could do it, but I just haven't started doing it yet just for fear of things breaking and exploding. So there are a lot of, I think that there are most people that, that say that work on iPads do stuff more like what I'm doing, which you know, is typically text-based stuff, messaging, communications, that kind of stuff. But what Jonathan's showing is examples of people, including himself, who are able to take what are already professional-grade applications on iOS and create work with them. And I think that it's great to see that because 
right now it's true you you can't do everything that you want on an iPad but but you can do a lot of it and for some people you can do everything like if i just ran my company like i wasn't actually a podcast host i wouldn't even own a mac at this point because wow. it's not needed for the work that i do yeah that says a lot yeah i think that there's a lot of confusion around this discussion based on well based on some things i've seen the verge say um, and also some of the questions I got when I received my iPad, a lot of people said the most common question by far was, can I replace my laptop or can I get my work done on it without any further clarification? But there's no way to make that a simple question because it entirely depends on everything about what you do, how you do it, what your mm-hmm. history is of doing it. And yep. so I thought it'd be good to kind of work out some of those, like who can do the work on their iPad, who might struggle a bit and how could I do better at it? Um, I'm hoping to do a video about this. So that's why I was kind of hoping you might have some, some tips for me that could (laughs) help me get it done so far. It's um, it's been a bit of a struggle. Like uh, I like uh, Gruber's analogy was that it's like trying to work with oven mitts on. Um, And I can feel that it's like, I I can kind of tell everything's in there, but I don't quite know what I don't know what I'm doing. So it's not intuitive and it's not quick. And I think that's where most people that say you can't do real work on an iPad are confused is that they're just struggling because they can't do it right now. It's new and it's, it's hard when it's new because you're not skilled at it. And I'm struggling through that too, but I can still sense that there's, there's something beyond that. If I can just break through, um, what do I need to break through? What am I missing here? Well, see, the thing is that like the question of like, can I use this to replace my laptop? The answer for some people is yes. The answer for some people is no. Like there are a lot of things depending on your work. But the thing that is the same for everyone is there is no one-to-one conversion. There is no one-to-one translation. You have to do things differently in some ways. And I think that this is where a lot of people immediately fall down because they are either unwilling or they just don't know that something can be done because it isn't done the exact way they're currently doing it, mm-hmm. right? So somebody is like, they have a thing that they, like maybe they, the way that they use their email, for example, right? The email app or the email service that they use doesn't work the way that they want. So they're like, well, I can't do my email on this device. I so, well, you probably can, but you might have to make some changes. Or, you know, there's a lot of things that the Shortcuts app previously workflow bridged the gap for. For a lot of people, right? Like, because you're like, well, the iOS can't do this. I was like, well, maybe it can, but you've got to give it some time. And the thing is, is part of the problem here is that there are lots of things on iOS that will take you longer to do. You might have to tap more things. You might have to use more apps, more small utilities than you would on a Mac, for example. But it's about what your enjoyment level is for computing. Mm -hmm. So for me... Whilst I know that there are things that take me longer, there are things that require more work, there are things that require more apps, I enjoy using iOS. I don't enjoy using the Mac. It doesn't give me joy. And it may for many people, and that's totally fine, which is why I am not the type of person that preaches that the iPad is a replacement for everyone, because it isn't. But I think it is a replacement for lots of work for lots of people in lots of different fields. Um, but you have to be willing to give it the time and find ways to bridge the perceived gaps that you might have. Well, I think I might be in a somewhat typical position here where I love the hardware. I pick up an iPad and I think, yeah, I want to hold this more often. I want an excuse to have this in my hands all day long <laughs> and actually do something interesting with it. Mm-hmm. And then I sit there and I, I start trying to, and it's not coming and it's not flowing. So I just, I kind of push it away and I open up my laptop again. So for one thing, there's two sort of two things that come out of that. The biggest thing is, is realizing that the next generation is not going to have the same problem. No. Cause a lot of it is just about my learned behaviors and what I'm stuck doing and what I would have to unlearn to try to move to an all touch interface. That's, so many of the problems and then trying to differentiate that from i may not have the correct app right now i haven't found the right thing for me and and once you do then some of those things might actually be able to click into place so what was the first time that 
this did click for you? Like, what did you start doing when you realized, oh, I'm actually being really productive here? <laughs> well, so my kind of history with the iPad has been a love-hate kind of relationship from the beginning. You know, like, I bought the original iPad, used it a bunch, stopped using it skipped a generation or two you know like and this this was happening you know like got the ipad mini used it constantly then just stopped using it and you know like it i was off and on for quite some time then ios 9 was shown off and ios 9 was when multitasking existed Ooh, for the right, first right. time and i was like huh okay that seems interesting i didn't own an ipad at the time and i was in wwdc well, i was in san francisco for wwdc so i went to the app store and i bought an ipad air 2 and then for like two or three months, I was playing around with it and kind of getting a feel for it. And at that time, you know, because it was in the beta period, pretty much only Apple's apps worked in multitasking. But I could see, I could start to see use cases, right? So, you know, like a frequent one for me is is looking and reading web pages and writing out notes into the notes app, which is research for the shows that I do, right? And I was like, well, this is perfect for that because I have both things side by side here and the, the keyboard's pretty good. And they showed off the iPad Pro. That was in September. They showed off the iPad Pro. And of like, this is 2014, 2015, something yeah, like that. Yeah, sounds about right. And I immediately felt like I could understand the advancements that this device could give me because I'd started to enjoy using the iPad in a multitasking view. Well, now you have two iPads side by side, effectively, in portrait mode, mm. and a keyboard, and a pencil, stylus. I am a big pen and paper guy. It's, it's one of my loves is pen and paper. That's true. I did leave out your other all pen podcast, which uh, ties in. Yeah, I have, a, I have a show that I've been recording since 2012 every single week about pens and paper. It's my longest running Amazing. show. To prepare for this show, by the way, I did. I go back. I went back to find the oldest recordings of Mike Hurley I could find in the uh, podcast world. So I, I, listened, I yep. listened to your first you, episode. You won't find their stuff from 2010, but you ain't going to find it. I'm good at getting rid of that. <laughs> Gone from the internet. So 2012 is the earliest. I have the same. I think I think I even I had something in 2009, but I hosted on Libsyn mm. and stopped paying for it. Yep. So, I mean, Libsyn's great, but if you don't commit to like, I'm going to pay for this bill for the rest of my life, it's gonna go. then it just goes away from the internet. So. Mm-hmm. It might be recoverable. The account might be recoverable. I, I wrote to them and I asked. I, tr- I tried to oh, get it. They're like, no. But I'm sure okay. if I found anything, I'd be very disappointed by what I found anyway. So let's let's not it's try. It's not to. good for you. Anyway, it's not your, good for you. Your, to find your pen it. podcast had good audio uh, at the beginnings. So. Oh, I don't know about that, but I appreciate the compliment. It, it, uh, it, it wasn't terrible. It, yeah, I've been doing it for a couple of years at that point. So I'm using like I don't know, like we're both using Blue Yetis or something. But right, it was right. it was serviceable. Yeah. So the iPad Pro was shown off, and I could immediately see how better that device would be, you know, like to have a permanent keyboard and to have a stylus. Um, Like I use a Wacom tablet with my Mac just for various like RSI reasons and stuff. I just find it more comfortable to be able to switch around input methods. Right. Makes sense. And I was like, well, the Apple Pencil seems like it's perfect for that, right? Like it's another input method as well as being able to take notes and do the traditional things that you should be doing with a, with a incredible stylus like that. So then when I got that iPad, I fell in love with it. You know, the screen was huge and I could get all of the apps that I wanted. And as apps started getting upgraded and updated to support split screen, I kind of found myself in a situation like you are in right now, like lots of people are in right now, which is I love this hardware. I need to find things to do on it. Yeah. Justify this purchase for me. Well, it was just I was so enticed by it and I enjoyed using it so much Mm. that I wanted to be able to find things I could do. And I started looking at my work and what I do and just found that like everything that I do that is not recording and editing could very easily be moved to that device. And I would say that lots of people in lots of businesses will deal in text in some way Code is like a different thing. Some people are able to write code on iOS, some are not. There are many constraints around that. But I just found myself in a situation where I could see a couple of things. You know, one was I really wanted to use this device. Two was that I could actually, without too much work, change some of my workflows and improve on them in some ways by being able to use iOS. I would have the computer that I wanted with me all the time. Plus, it was helpful to me because I was using my iPhone so much that those devices are effectively 
they share so much, you know, like in app mm-hmm. support and the way that they work that w- when I started like thinking of it that way, everything started to click for me and it became more familiar of an experience on a daily basis for me to use an iPad because I was so familiar with iOS on the iPhone. And then it was just a case of over time understanding all of the benefits, you know, like I can truly use this device anywhere in a way that laptops don't necessarily work for me. Um, it was so much more comfortable, so much lighter, so much more portable. And that was it. And then since then, I have been a devout iPad Pro user. I actually have for the last couple of years, I use both versions of the iPad Pro for, for various reasons. I liken this to if somebody has a desktop on a laptop, that's what I'm doing. So my 12.9 inch uh, iPad Pro is like a desktop. It never leaves my home. Mm-hmm. Actually, a lot of the time I am using it in a stand with a, with a keyboard, with a magic keyboard. Like when I'm writing and stuff, I have it on a stand so it's elevated. Um, but then I also use it with the smart folio now and, you know, I kind of mix and match as I'm working throughout the day. But then my, uh, 10, my 11 inch iPad Pro, um, I use it for just reading and watching videos and stuff in bed in the morning and in the evening, like as I'm finishing my day and starting my day. And then it's also the machine that I take with me when I travel. That's the only iPad I get LTE in, um, and that's the one that I use because it's smaller, it's lighter, it's easier to move. You know, even though the 12.9 got smaller and got lighter, the 11 inch is still, for me, is still better for those traveling purposes. So I am all in on the iPad. You know, like as it stands right now, the reason that I haven't moved my audio production is because, you know, it's this is a huge part of my business. This is a massive amount of time for me. I want to wait to see if iOS gets better audio support, you know, to be able to record in two applications at once, for example, which it can't currently do right. before I start looking into it. You know, I know people that some people that record on the iPad or some people that record on the Mac and edit on the iPad. There are tools, there are great tools. Um, for this but i just haven't yet sunk the time into learning them because i'm waiting for the hopeful of a shoe to drop for that for me and and then i'll maybe we'll we'll move my entire production process to ios i believe what happened one day i mean i am in the camp of believing that potentially the ipad itself isn't the future of computing but whatever the future of computing is, like the next big wave, mm-hmm. is closer to the iPad than it is the Mac. Yeah. That's my personal belief. I have a feeling it's Apple's personal belief, too. <laughs> I think so. You can feel the momentum. I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. I've actually faced a similar problem with trying to do this video about photography workflow. That's what I want my iPad video to be. And the idea was okay, I'll take one of my jobs. And I'll I'll try to do a photo job on the iPad. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up fighting with it so much just in trying to learn things. So, for example, uh, Photoshop hasn't arrived yet. We're waiting till 2019 to run Photoshop on an iPad. Uh, So instead of using Affinity Photo, which I hear great things about, um, you know, people I know that have trustworthy opinions really like it. Um, They are really trying to build professional software. It is a great app. But on this one photo I needed to get done, it wasn't even that time sensitive. I was was able to take my time and watch some tutorials and stuff. I needed to composite two images. So like, you know, bring in one element of one photo onto another and do a bunch of cloning and healing and a bunch of pretty simple things that I do on most photos. And I just, I I actually never got it done. I didn't figure out how to do a bunch of the tasks well enough. And I know that it's there, but... It means that to do a video where I'm showing people how to do it, I need to take a risk that like this job won't be done the way that I wanted it to. Or in, in other ways of testing it for photography, I'm importing a whole memory card and then trying to do file management with Lightroom CC. And then all of a sudden, all my photos from that job are now in my iPad pipeline. And so if I'm going to get them back onto a real computer, I need to figure that out so hey i'm gonna call you on real computer i'm not using oh, phrases like yes. real computer oh, around here it just i <laughs> slid back into my uh 1990s language oh geez that's embarrassing i mean i'd say the same i, I do the same thing with phones and uh cameras by the way my real camera is just the bigger one yeah. although obviously mm-hmm. uh anyway yeah so i, I kind of get trapped in this um uncertainty about workflow and it means that i can't take as many chances as i'd like to in 
experimenting with how this stuff works. It's tricky. I mean, I think the advice that I tend to give to people is to to not act when you're trying to learn to not actually work on something that would be considered your regular work, right? Like right. To, to have a, a situation where you're able to like mess around with it a little bit more so you can spend the time to learn and, yeah. and get used to it. A good lesson I've tried to remember, sometimes I forget, is never use a technique for the first time on a job. Always do it on your own project first. So, I mean, exactly. in terms of photography, it's like, don't use a new piece of gear for the first time on the job. Don't use a new Not lighting you technique. you won't know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Figure <laughs> it out first. You've got to play around with it. Yeah. And, and I do think that the creative endeavors, like these professional creative endeavors, whether it is development, photography, um, audio, music production, these are the hardest things to move to a new platform. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this isn't just to iOS. This is like from Mac to PC, for example, because unless there is a piece of software, like if, if you're using something like Adobe Audition, right, that's going to be fine. But what about the rest of it? You know, like core recording applications are trickier on Windows. Driver support is trickier on Windows than right. it is on the Mac. Like it's all harder. So it's always more difficult to to have to move to a different platform with these types of like professional creative endeavors where people have really established entrenched workflows. This is the hardest stuff to move. It's not impossible, but it's the hardest stuff to move. But my kind of feeling for my recommendation for people is to kind of follow the example that I've set. Like I would really like assume that the majority of people, no matter what they do, they have at least part of their work that can can be translated to an iPad. They just need to work out what it is if they so desperately want to move to iOS. Like, I'm not saying everybody has to do this. I think that's kind of a little redundant, right? Mm, like, the, mm-hmm. kind of saying that you must move to iOS because of whatever reason. I don't think that's right. But I just think it, it just continues to boggle my mind that people, especially writers, say that this isn't, it's not possible to replace your laptop. Like, People that write articles for a living, I really don't understand what constraints they're finding themselves against. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it really boggles my mind. Um, and my only assumption can be that they're just using a publishing platform, some description that won't allow them to. Right. And then that's, that's your problem. Right. So we, we have rebuilt and maintained our own CMS. The, the original code we, we licensed, but then out right, purchased it and, and have worked on it since and have rebuilt our own publishing platform for our shows at Relay FM. And we make considerations about the backend system to consider iOS right. and the way that iOS will work. So we have a we have like this bookmarklet tool, which is wonderful to, to create our show notes. So the links that you'll see in, on our pages in our RSS feeds. And you can reorder the links by dragging them around. But we also made sure that this was going to be possible on iOS as well, because that's how I'm going to be using it. And and we always make that consideration that we have to be able to use these things on iOS as well, because we're focused on that. And you've seen a lot, you know, like a lot of web tools have gone that way. There's still a lot of work to be done. And there's also some work that can be done on Apple's side about just the power that they put into the web browser. But you know, I it, I think that there are many different options for people to be able to do this stuff today. But I think a lot of it, I think a lot of the resistance is just a, you know, it, it's like a religion, mm. right? Or or it's like uh, people believe that if the if iOS or if the iPad, the iPad can only succeed at the behest of the failure of the Macintosh, right? Right. Or even once you've stated your opinion, it's hard to change it publicly or people are yeah resistant to they don't want to say that they were ever wrong yeah and i don't think that i don't necessarily blame people for that i understand that it's like you know my feeling of like oh i could never use windows but it's like it's not as bad i mean it's not it's, <laughs> yeah i you do could. use windows yeah. right but i i i just don't like it as much and, and i get it like it's trickier for me there are things i mean so i have a gaming pc because like i know that if i want to play serious games or want to stream games my mac is not going to cut it I've tried. Yeah, it won't no, cut it, but no. my PC will, you know. And and this is kind of the way that I think about a lot of computing. I have different tools for different tasks, but I think some people they live in one mindset for whatever reason and it and it can be tricky to break out of that. I I understand it, but I I really do think that the iOS, especially the iPad is a very powerful tool that can be used in many interesting ways. When writers say that they can't do it, they they're wrong. I mean, I don't. I don't, I don't want to say they're lying, but they're mistaken. Uh, it, it it could be possible. They just may not want to. 
they have a workflow which is precluding them. Yeah. But it's, you know, it is possible for them to do it. But, you know, I know many, many people um, who are writers by trade who are able to, to just use iOS now yeah. and because it makes sense. Like, if there is one thing iOS yeah. <laughs> can do is deal with text. This is something I've complained about with tech reviews in general is that a lot of them are written by writers, which makes sense because they're writing tech. Like, that's what they do. They write. And then a lot, so a lot of discussion gets, happens around writing. And I'm like, you guys are lucky. Like if, if you mostly just write, you're much more free with your hardware. You can, you have so many more options yep. available to you. And I would experiment a lot more if that was most of what the work I do is. I just, I happen to rely on slightly different things. And like one of the biggest ones around a lot of this professional creative production which includes podcasts videos photography so much of that work is file management it's taking big files keeping them organized uh, moving them to somewhere safe and having them available for the project as you're working on them it's just everything about basic file management is really key to it and unfortunately that's still one of the places where ios has been the slowest to make big changes we've got the files app now great step forward but uh, there's, you know, so one thing that's one of those like workarounds, but uh, sorry, like it's a limitation, but you can make it work is when you're importing from a memory card. So it doesn't matter how big these raw files are. It's all going to go through the photos app. And then the photos are going to sit there even as I bring them out into other apps. So this is this is a bit of a bottleneck in, in my fl- workflow right now is trying to figure out, okay, so I'm using Lightroom. I import a whole memory card, which might be. 30 gigs, right? All of a sudden, I've put a lot of new storage onto the iPad. I then need to import it out of the Photos app and into Lightroom. Mm -hmm. And then I haven't found it yet, but I was told that there is a shortcut that will clear your last import from the Photos app. I think that it's either not been released yet or is about to be released. Like that Adobe has made it, but when it was spoken about in the Verge article, that wasn't a publicly available thing. Yeah, it was funny because that was one of the things that they showed me with the um, iPad, like little training session, and they said to, they said it was tomorrow, which was now a month ago. So it's actually kind of weird that a, sh- okay. a shortcut is is delayed. Um, but I haven't been able to find it yet. Anyway, this would theoretically clear out your most recent import. Running a shortcut to do that isn't ideal, but um, I can deal with that. Right, but this this is an example of what I was saying before, right? And like, it's a great example, right? That when you plug in an SD card, all you can do is import things into the Photos app. But then once they're in the Photos app, they're available to the system. You can put them into Lightroom and then yes, you can delete. Like that's a, a path that you can take. But like the thing is like that is, it all works. It just doesn't work the way you expect or want it to and this is the stuff that happens on ios you can get things to work but it might just take an extra hoop or two to get to it and then you ask yourself well why would i do it well but then you go back to the well why are you interested in ipad in the first place and then can you balance these things well and like i said i think this is going to be completely different for all these kids growing up with an ipad in their hands i mean we've all seen kids that can't even talk yet flipping through an ipad screen with no trouble at all and navigating everything without thinking twice about it. iOS is going to have moved way forward by the time they get a little bit older and they will have used a lot of the stuff as their first experience with computing. So for example, this is definitely one of the reasons why I started to get so intrigued in this, all of this in the first place, you know, it was very clearly going to be the future for some people. And if I want to continue to have a career in what I do right now in 30 years' time, <laughs> yeah, yeah. then maybe I need to understand how to use both of these things. Oh, yeah, I, I always think it's really strange when people are so committed to not moving forward. I remember talking to uh, photographers uh, you know, that were older than me when I was getting started, because I started doing photography right at the transition of film to digital. So I, da- I dabbled in both, right. but I started working primarily uh, always in digital and uh, you know like teachers and anybody in the field at the time was really aggressive against digital and there were big shortcomings uh sensors were smaller they were noisier mm-hmm. colors were worse dynamic range was worse everything was was a bit worse but the advantages were so clear it was just so obvious how much momentum was behind this just like there is yep. with with iPads and if you are if you get so frustrated by not 
understanding it today, you're going to get left behind. I don't want to say left behind. That's that's cruel. Um, but, you know, you're going to struggle in the future. It's, there is a something that happened with the iPad, which I think gets people a little bit lost at times, is that people think, well, the iPad is a nearly nine-year-old product line, right? So it's like, well, it's nine years old and it's only here. Hmm. The thing was, nothing happened until three years ago. <laughs> it was a big iPad it touch It mostly stayed the same yeah. until iOS 9. So like, it, it is worth considering the iPad as we know it now. The iPad Pro is like a whole different thing. What the iPad Pro has done for iOS mm-hmm. and the, the focus that they've put on it, that started three years ago. Right. That started of iOS 9. I recommend people frame it in their minds that way and imagine this as a three-year-old computing platform and and then look at it from there. And if you look at it in that short of view, which I know is a that is a uh, a point of view which benefits my thinking more and I understand that, but if you if you can put the blinkers on it and think of it that way, look at where it's come in the last 3 years. Look where it's what's about to happen next year. Like this is something that is so easy to keep pointing to right now because it's like a win for people on my side, right? But Photoshop, like that oh, is yeah. no joke. No, it's right? enormous. The amount of effort that Adobe is putting in to make this happen is huge. You know, like it is very possible. I don't know how this went, but it is very possible that Adobe decided to rewrite Photoshop completely so they could put it on the iPad. Mm -hmm. Not that we've decided to rewrite Photoshop and we can put it on the iPad because they are spending so much time, all of their time in promoting the next version of Photoshop in talking about its use on the iPad. So that is a, that is going to be a turning point one way or the other, right? We either get to this point and everything changes, yeah, or we absolutely. get to this point, and it's no different. And if it ends up being no different, then we know. This is all it's going to be. But I believe that it isn't just because Photoshop will exist. I think the fact that Apple and Adobe have got together, have spoken about what they both want to do, and have come to the decision that moving Photoshop to the iPad in its full state is a good idea, I think that that is a very, very clear signal into where both of these companies believe tablet computing will be. That's where part of my conclusion has come to so far, is that I wanted to have a story to tell about here's a flow where you can import, do your image selections in Lightroom, maybe you do some color editing in VSCO, and then you do your Photoshop in Affinity because it's a great app, um, or you know Pixelmator, which I, I didn't spend any time with. But I have since decided the the real story is i'm going to wait i and and i think most people that already have that learned behavior um will probably want to do the same thing as of today but it's yeah. completely different if you're a new photographer or a, a new creative or just a young person wanting to experiment with making stuff you absolutely could go pick up affinity for i think the ipad version is 20 dollars compared to uh what am i paying for Creative Cloud, I think fifty bucks a month or something. I don't a lot. Yes. I mean, I, I'm, yeah. I pay. All. It's more in dollars and every month. Is, is <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And um, you know, that's that's a real hurdle to young people. And and what it was in in college when I was young was you'd you'd steal it. I mean, you know, you just you'd download Photoshop and you'd learn how to use it, and then as soon as you started working, you would go buy your first version. But now everybody's going to buy. Uh, affinity the first time and maybe stick with it so that's why adobe has every reason to push so hard on this and i'm really excited to see them moving forward in this way and yeah basically seeing photoshop released will determine a lot about the direction that ipads and and that kind of mobile creative work is going to go in the near future let me ask you about that what you mentioned about stealing it and everybody (laughs) did no one's judging you everyone did uh wait no i take it back (laughs) i wonder what young people will do now because especially like i mean just photoshop in general is especially in the way that we did it pretty much unstealable now yeah because of moving to a subscription model and i wonder how that will change their business because there are a lot of people that pay for photoshop every month now that only pay for photoshop every month now because they're able to get a free copy when they were 16 yeah a hundred percent 
And I wonder what, I, I have no idea if it will make an impact, but I wonder if it will, like in 30 years time. I think it has to make an impact. It's What's harder to say is exactly what that will look like, mm-hmm. but there, there, that scenario I, I explained is, is what will happen so often, um, especially when you're a little bit older. So like, I don't know, I, I probably got my first, got my first Photoshop when I was uh, maybe like 14 or 15. And um, I probably wouldn't have bought it myself then. But by the time I was like 18, yeah, I mean, I can spend 20 bucks on an app. That's not a big deal. And, and people that are at, at that turning point in high school, which I'm sure some people listening are, 20 bucks still isn't a crazy amount of money. You know, it's like it's it's a little investment, but you can see how much it can pay off. And the trouble of trying to bootleg any of this stuff now is so huge. Uh, I don't know if there'll be that same feeling of, it's inevitable that I will use Adobe software for my job someday, which I always had that feeling, you know, like I'm training now as an 18 year old to be a professional Photoshopper in, in a few years from now, cause I'm going to learn this piece of software and get really good at it and then move forward in my career. And uh, I, yeah, I just, I don't think that's going to happen as much and I bet it will have a real impact on the market. Well, I mean, especially when you think of the fact that, when we were younger, software was expensive. Mm-hmm. Now the perceived price of software is zero. Yeah, yeah. It should be. They should be In paying general. me to use their software. Exactly. So, like that, that, I think that must make it even trickier. I don't know. I mean, my only assumption is that that companies like Adobe know this, and they're you know really good trials and or very simple dumbed down versions of this software to offer for free. You know, with the hope that you just will get them later i don't know that's what i would like to believe that that they're trying to do you know another place you can see this uh it's not it's not a perfect analogy but is in video editing um avid was the solution when i was when i was in high school i was really lucky that some somebody had donated a avid editing suite to my computer lab so we had this one really great video editing computer but it was avid hardware like i think the the monitor even had an avid logo on it and hmm. uh only that computer could run the software and it was you know it was very expensive and there was also premiere at the time but it was wasn't anything serious um i don't know where final cut was at the time maybe i wasn't using it but avid was the real software it was the photoshop of the day like this is where you get real video editing work done digitally no nothing else can handle any professional digital video that was it wasn't even a question now, look where we are. Final Cut and Premiere are very serious competitors to Avid. Avid is becoming kind of forgotten to the mainstream public. I mean, it is still what a lot of Hollywood uses, but they've moved way, way up market. Um, there is much less awareness to the rest of us about Avid, and we don't really worry about it. You know, we're like, I'm going to master F- Final Cut, and I'm never going to need to move past that. Why would I? Why would I even think about trying to learn Avid at this point? Like Final Cut. I can run a YouTube channel off of it and I could make a short film off of it and I could make a major motion picture if I even wanted to. And that may be where they find themselves with Photoshop is that it becomes the the ultra high-end professional solution that's always quite a bit more expensive, but maybe the mainstream does all use some cheaper form of software. I don't know. I think it's this is the the natural order of software like this, right? Like something like Avid, if it didn't, if they didn't move, which they seemed not to have really, mm-hmm. it was always going to go this way for yeah. them. Yeah, and stayed expensive. <laughs> yes. To, well, to put a bow on the on the iPad section here, could I just get what what are some? I mean, app recommendations. What are some practical things people could go do if they have an iPad? sitting uh, at home covered in dust and they want to try to get some work done. Can you direct anybody to either apps or accessories that might help them take a step forward? Get a keyboard. If you have an iPad Pro, you should get a keyboard. Um, There are options. The smart keyboard folio is great, but it's expensive. Um, You should look into Bridge. They do great keyboards. Uh, It's Bridge with a Y. Um, Logitech make a bunch of options. An iPad with a keyboard significantly changes what the device is all about, especially if that keyboard is permanently attached by a case in some way, so it's always there, it's always with you. Um, download and play with Shortcuts. Shortcuts, is, which is the app that Apple bought, they bought a company called Workflow, turned it into Shortcuts. Um, this is an important part of getting any product, productive stuff done on iOS because it will help bridge the gaps for you, and it's actually incredibly powerful. 
my friend Federico Vitici at Max Stories is has a lot of incredible resources about using shortcuts uh, for your gain, and it will help you. Um, and I think that you'll be you may be surprised at how much power is contained within it. They're like kind of like the two universal things. I mean, you know, from there, it's just a case of like finding apps that work for you. You know, there are a bunch of great apps, you know, like Fantastic Health for calendaring, Spark and Airmail for email. You know, there's a lot of really great stuff out there. And I just recommend that people try it out. You know, like, for example, did you know that in Safari, you can have two tabs side by side? Like, this is a thing I, you can do in Safari. No, I didn't know that. How How do you do that? Right. So one easy way to do it, there are some, some like taps and stuff, but one easy way to do it is if you press and hold uh, on a link, oh. it will pop up and say open a new tab. And then you have two tabs side by side in Safari. Like There's lots and lots of really interesting and exciting things that could be done with the iPad. But like with most of iOS, you have to spend the time poking and prodding and finding these things. Um, and then I think it I think it will be of great benefit to you. Oh, well, I will spend the time. I don't know if it'll become my working machine, but I want to try. I want to see how far you I know, can take it. I, th- I really don't think it has to be the machine mm-hmm. for so many people. I But I think that it is a really valid A machine, you know, that there is a bunch of things that you can do on it, which take up a lot of your time and allow you to be untethered from the same working desk that you're always at, for example. This episode is brought to you by Cronaby Watches. If you've listened to the show before, you already know that these are hybrid, connected watches with beautiful traditional design. That means that they have real, physical dials, and they're made of premium materials. But they also have all of the smart features that we expect from our modern tech. You may have also seen my YouTube video about Cronaby, but one thing I completely forgot to talk about was the battery life. A lot of people in the comments called me out for this because it's such an important feature in a device that you're using all day long, every day. And I know that with my wrist computer style smartwatches, I get really sick of plugging them in once a day, making sure that they're charged and having to bring extra cables with me when I travel. This is where Cronaby knocks it out of the park because their batteries last for about two years. No charging, no winding, you just keep wearing it. And eventually when you need to change the battery, it's not some weird proprietary one that you need to buy from the manufacturer at a markup. It's a totally normal watch battery that you can buy anywhere. And that simple battery is powering features like notifications, music controls, camera triggers, if this, then that support, and the list goes on and on. I seriously have no idea how they make it all work on that basic old school battery. But it does, and it's great. To learn more, visit chronobee.com or to see just how great their design skills are, you should check them out on Instagram, K-R-O-N-O-B-Y. And if you let them know that Stallman sent you, it would show them how much we appreciate their support of the podcast. So thanks again to Cronby for supporting the show. Well, next, I wanted to hear a little bit about your video adventures, which I know you've been doing a lot less of huh. lately, but you have a mm-hmm. YouTube channel, so everybody should... Right now, go to the show notes and subscribe to Mike's YouTube just to put some pressure on him to ever post another video. Okay, or I have different, I have different, different <laughs> video outlets okay, that well, I'm that I'm working on now. So I should. Tell, so I started a YouTube channel, which was effectively I wanted to see what it would be like to vlog was what I was trying to do. And right. I did it for a while, and I was happy with what I was outputting, but I ultimately felt like. It wasn't what I was looking for. It wasn't enough for me. It didn't really give me what I wanted. You know, like what I wanted was a creative endeavor that was different and exciting to me in a different way to podcasting. You know, like I wanted a a different creative endeavor, which I could derive value and excitement from. It ended up really feeling that making YouTube videos was too similar to the work I was already doing. There is an awful lot of parallels between planning and recording a video than there is to podcasting and then you're editing it right like it was just like this is too much of the same it wasn't giving me what i wanted which was a new thing something new to do yeah that's fine so i'm i'm mostly then over time well no i 100 percent have stopped that i I have kept my youtube channel will still exist and it was six for a long time because 
I still have ideas in me that I might want to do one day, mm. which I, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but we'll see. But I'm playing around with a couple of other areas of video now. So I'm using Instagram stories a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm nowhere near to the level that you are, but I I think we we kind of do these things slightly differently. Your Instagram stories are beautiful and very good. It's meant to be a very freeform type of media like it's it's built to yeah. do absolutely anything you want like it's a sandbox it's mm-hmm. experiment make a mess whilst i am using it more to be like a replacement for some other types of social networking right right so like i might post to instagram stories instead of tweet right so like that's kind of how i'm viewing it and i like playing with that medium there there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can do and instagram seem very or facebook seem very intent on adding more and more and more tools and uh, you know i like playing with it Mm -hmm. but the other big area for me now is uh twitch streaming game streaming like that's that's the video endeavor that i'm the most excited about so i have a podcast called playing for fun which is as you mentioned earlier like we're trying to just talk about the good parts of video games we don't get into political stuff we don't rag we don't find a game and just like talk about how bad it is we just me and my co-host tiff we are best friends and we both love video games so we allow that to show through in what we do right and we we do an episode a month of the show the audio show where we talk about a game that we played that month but in between every week we are streaming either the game that we're next going to talk about or just another game that we enjoy and that is like a, a an interesting part for me. It's a big thing. It's something that I'm really enjoying putting time into and learning more about and kind of slowly ramping up what that is all kind of what that can offer me and using Twitch and using YouTube. And it's something that I'm enjoying because the the streaming is really the means to playing the games. So it doesn't need to be this big success thing right but we're doing pretty well on twitch we're affiliated we're moving our way to partner you know i think within six months if we keep working on it the way that we are maybe even less than we'll be twitch partner i don't 100 percent really know what it is but like i know it just means you get more stuff available to you because it's a channel that people pay attention to or watch or whatever so that that is like another area of video that i'm enjoying because both instagram and Twitch streaming and game streaming are very different in production to podcasting in a way that YouTube videos, at least the way that I want to make them, aren't. You know, like vlogging and tech videos, which would be the two things that I'm most likely going to make, very similar to what I do right now. (laughs) Right. You talk, then you edit. (laughs) Exactly. Like plan, talk, edit. And that's just ultimately not not provided me with the difference that I was looking for, you know? Well, so that's an interesting entry point into combining the two. There must have been some point where you decided not to integrate video into your regular podcasting as well. Like, you know, the the same kind of thing that you're doing with Twitch, but making basically watchable podcasts. I mean, to me, podcasts aren't videos. They are, they are audio. But what, what is your thought about that because there are there are some very successful video podcasts. There's H three H three. There's mm-hmm. Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, it's becoming a bit more common where people have full video recordings. How do you think about that interaction? I mean, I really honestly think of them as two different things, and I have like practical reasons and philosophical reasons for why I don't make video versions of shows the practical reason is it's a lot more work and it's really <laughs> yes, hard to do yes and not a lot more return in most cases um you know like there is a technology network called twit and they built sets they record video of everything and i've heard this the guy at the top leo laporte he who founded the network has said multiple times that their video is mostly a loss leader it doesn't mm. that you know the, the audio downloads destroy the view numbers that they get you know like it's just so disproportionate and i believe the same because honestly a lot of video podcasts it's just like well especially the way that we would do them we're never in person like a lot of the successful shows that you mentioned they're interviews that are occurring in person which are more intriguing to watch but like what i would be doing is i am looking into a camera and then my co-host is talking on skype is also looking into a camera so it's just two tight shots of talking heads 
right? Or we can set up other views, but like, what are we showing? We're just just showing <laughs> me sitting here at my desk. Like, yeah. I don't think that there is a lot of intriguing value to that. And when you try and go outside of that, so then you're like, okay, well, I'm talking about the iPad and now I'm showing you the iPad. What you are doing is ruining the audio because... <laughs> Like, for example, when I record with my co-hosts for the shows that I do, we never see each other. We never use video on Skype like me and you aren't right now, because if you can see each other, you will start to show each other things or gesture to things that the audience cannot see. You will not spend the time to describe them in the same way. So that's kind of my philosophical reason. And but then the practical reason is that it would be much, much more work for i don't believe much more gain you can see the difference the most when people do live audio shows which you know you've been doing so you must know this the the feeling of the audience just laughs but no audio happened and so obviously something happened on stage yes and as a listener you're like wait what what did i miss there must have been something hilarious that i'll never know about yeah we try we try as hard as we can to make our live shows close enough to the audio Mm -hmm. versions but there are differences like you know someone says something and then i make a face and then they laugh at the face it's like you're (laughs) never gonna see that right like so you know that that is where like i'm very confident in the route that we've decided to take because some people don't like the live shows and that's why because it it messes up their Mm -hmm. listening experience yeah i'm completely in I, i agree with you i'm the same kind of podcast listener i've just had this sort of challenge as a YouTuber that that's where I found a lot of my audience that they want everything to be on YouTube. And I don't. Yeah. I mean, well, here's the thing. I mean, this makes me sound like an old man, but they're not podcasts. The H3H3 podcast is not a podcast. Yeah. It's not. When they just watch clips, when they're like, look at this funny video and don't even describe it. It's not a podcast. It is a, a show. chat show, a YouTube chat show, yeah. which they also distribute audio for if mm-hmm. you want to get it. But that's not it's it's not a podcast. I, it frustrates me that like people are like, well, if there's microphones in front of our faces uh, right. and we're having a conversation, it's a podcast. But it's not the the, the format is different. Yeah, like, but like Conan O'Brien has a microphone on his desk, but it doesn't make it a podcast. But that that's it, right? They're chat shows, and it's not like I'm not trying to belittle it, right? Like, I think it's amazing. I, I've watched episodes of H3H3. I've seen some Joe Rogan stuff. Like, it's brilliant. It's like one of my favorite interview shows is uh, Hot Ones right, from yeah. First We Feast. And, you know, Sean Evans is, I believe, the greatest interviewer alive today. I think he is incredible. Like, he's absolutely incredible. But that's not a podcast, right? And <laughs> mm-hmm. they don't call it that either, right? It is a video show. And if you start incorporating video elements, like, it's not a podcast anymore. Like, it's fine to call it like a YouTube chat show or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, that's my old man seeping through, right? That Like, it's like, oh, back in my day. Yeah, but yeah. We don't have enough different words for these things. It's like, I don't understand why you want it to be called a podcast. Like, you know, YouTube has so much more cultural cachet. Just adding something onto the end of YouTube, like YouTube chat show, works perfectly fine. Yeah. But hey-ho. Yeah, maybe podcasts has just become shorthand for weekly mostly talking yeah non super edited long form long form internet content a hundred percent that's that's what's happening they're using the phrase to describe the production right so they're just calling it a podcast you know and i totally get why it's happening but it's just it's just a strange one to me because it's like it's not (laughs) it's not yeah but and but i'm also always thinking like who sits there with this video playing for an hour or three and wa- watches it? I've done it, man. You, uh, like, I've done which it. Which one? What do you, what have you watched? I've watched a bunch of um, H3H3 stuff. Yeah, all the way So, through. like, mm-hmm. and uh, all some of the stuff that Philip DeFranco has done. Again, like, I've, this was when I kind of was first finding and becoming obsessed with Hot Ones. Like, Sean Evans had done interviews on both of those shows. So, I watched the Philip DeFranco interview. I watched H3H3 interview. And then I was getting, like... Here's MKBHD, you know, the algorithm sucked me in, yeah, right? Yeah. So, like, here's MKBHD's H3H3 videos. Like, oh, okay, I'll watch that. And then it's like, here's this other person you're interested in. Here's this other person. So, like, you know, I don't necessarily watch, I'm not subscribed to 
the Hatred, not for any particular reason, right? But I've just seen a There's bunch of them. There's a lot of, of podcasts you can't subscribe to everything. <laughs> exactly. But like, I've just seen a bunch of them because it's interviews of people that I am interested in. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I've seen, I've watched them. What I see them as most valuable for is the clip versions, which H3 cuts down to those uh, like five, maybe 10 minute yeah. things. Yeah. And those can go pretty viral. Mm-hmm. So from a publicity perspective, I, I totally see that kind of value, but, um, and that's also what I end up usually watching. So I, I had one more big note here that I just kind of wanted to ask you to close things off. You and I, and the people that we follow talk about Apple somewhat disproportionately to <laughs> other companies. Why for you, um, why do you choose Apple? Like why is Apple a company that resonates with you and, and why do you keep coming back to them? It started with the iPod mini. That was where my whole journey began in like 2004 or something. Um, and I was interested in technology, but not at like a deep level, but the iPod mini was just a cool thing and I got it. And then just kind of went down the iPod rabbit hole for a while and ended up getting my first Mac, the first Intel iMac in 2005. And I think it was just, I mean, that especially then, Apple were making all of the exciting hardware, mm-hmm. you know, like in the early 2000s. And even though it's funny because they weren't anything near what they are today, right? And I think it was their underdog story. You know, they were on their ascent again with the iPod and, and everything that went from there, you know, into the iPhone and stuff like that. That was always interesting to me. And I think that, you know, I'm a person who values tasteful design um, in computing products which at the time there kind of wasn't really anything else that spoke to me in that way. You know, Windows was Windows and Windows has gotten a lot better and Android is Android and Android's got a heck of a lot better. But just at that time with OS X and then into iPhone OS, those the design languages all spoke to me. And then, like with anything, the longer you're in something, the more accustomed you get to it. And then it was kind of like, well, why would I ever move anywhere else? Everything I like is either inherent what I like or what I've learned to like from being in this camp for so long is only available to me here. Yeah. So, you know, there's an element of inertia, but I think that there is just an, my personal tastes for whatever reason seem to speak to this stuff. And also the people that are like-minded with me also seem to be interested in these exact same things, right? So I think that they're the reasons. It's like with any kind of camp, if you will, right? Like I'm just in the Apple camp because that's just what fits my mentality. And how's it been experimenting outside of it? Occasionally you got a Google Pixel 3 recently and you've got your gaming PC. So you have spent some recent time in the the other camps what's that been like again like as i mentioned earlier like i never even though i i have my preferred platforms i don't think that they're always the best for everything i consider myself lucky i think that i am able to have like a level of perception in technology where i know many people that don't they think that apple stuff is the best and nobody could ever tell them otherwise but I am more than willing to and, and able to see where something's better, right? So as I mentioned, right, like if I want to do gaming on a computer, if I want to play PC games and I want to be able to stream those games, you cannot do it with any ease on a Mac for software and hardware reasons. Right, yeah, I wouldn't even try. It's I've tried, it's basically, <laughs> it's so difficult to do. It's yeah. so, like, for example, like there is a piece of software called OBS, the streaming software that everybody uses. Yeah. When you uh, start it up on Windows, it scans your hardware and sets all of the settings for you. On the Mac, you have to work out how to do that on your own. I've I've gone through that, and it, it hurts. There it's you go. not fun. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's a bunch of drop-downs that you don't understand. Yeah. Right? It looks like a Windows app as well. So Yeah, oh, it yeah. is a Windows yeah. app, right? Like, And then they just brought it to the Mac. But on the PC, the first time that you open it, it scans the system hardware that you have and automatically sets the preferable settings for you and asks you if you want to tweak this or this depending on your internet bandwidth, right? So, And then with the Pixel, what, the main reason I got it was just because it is the perceived notion that the Pixel phone's cameras are better than the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And from being somebody who pays attention to enough people in the technology industry at large, 
I had taken this belief to be my own belief, right? Because I'd heard it so much. Right. And I was like, well, maybe I should actually make my own decision on this. So I like to, every couple of years, I will buy an Android phone of some description so I can always dip into Android when something's going on and see what's happening. And now I have had a Pixel since it came out. I've had it for like nearly two months, you know, a month and a half. And I now will form that opinion on my own that I personally, about 80% of the time, when looking at images side by side, prefer the images that the Pixel 3 provides. Oh, okay. It's yeah. not 100% of the time, but it is the vast majority of the time. And I'm not saying that it is necessarily a categorically better camera, mm-hmm. but for w- whatever it is that I am looking for in pictures, it meets my personal tastes more, right? Right. I don't know why that is, but it, but it, it just does. And then there's things like Night Sight, Oof, yeah. where it's become a big thing. And now I have a device where I can try it on. And so, you know, I'd like to, where possible, have available to me different types of technology so I'm able to form opinions because <laughs> my career is built upon having opinions. So I'd like to try and at least have the best ones i can well living more on podcasts and not so much on youtube anymore do you ever get any of that sort of fanboy backlash that you see in youtube comments i mean i imagine most people listening to you only stick around because they are interested in what you have to say Uh, whereas you know on youtube or anywhere i post videos there'll always be a lot of people there aren't a lot of drive-bys yeah Yeah, we don't get a lot of drive-bys and that's because there's no algorithm (laughs) the algorithm is what gives you the people that are angry at you. I mean, so I get people that are angry at me for the things that I say a lot, but it's different. <laughs> well, you're a very curt, controversial figure. Uh, I guess they're angry at me because I think a lot of the time it comes from the fact that like people think they know how I would feel about something, but then I surprise them. And my opinion isn't the opinion that they think it should be. Right. Rather than it being like, Apple sucks, you're a fanboy <laughs> and a moron. Yeah. I don't really get that because those people aren't finding me. Yeah. Well, sometimes they do, but that's a whole bigger story for another time probably. <laughs> but it's it, it it doesn't happen in the same way. It's part of why I like to hear podcast opinions a bit more than on YouTube is that I think there is a there's a cooling effect on YouTube from all of that hate. So I will and I feel it when I do my reviews that I need to be a little more guarded on YouTube because people that haven't lived in a a specific ecosystem, whether it's Windows or Mac, for a long time. So I think a lot of these are younger commenters that aren't so committed to any specific platform will feel like it's bias to keep mostly talking about one of the platforms and not the other ones because you, uh, you know, you just hate them because you're a fanboy. And it just, it's... It's inherently obvious in a podcast that the reason is because that's where I am. Like this is to me, computers are Apple because I don't need to look for additional computers. So the whole most of the the news about computers to me, most of it happens around Apple. And this is in actual computers uh, as far as like laptops, um, tablets uh, and phones. But, uh, you know, all the peripherals and accessories, like, then I'm, I, I will be buying more from other brands. But, yeah, I don't, on YouTube, there isn't this understanding of, like, look, I'm not going to be changing constantly. That just is unlikely to happen. But then you bec- or I become a little bit defensive about that, maybe. And I can't be as open about, like, look, I'm, I've already chosen Apple. Like, this, <laughs> I, even, even if I'm going to review the camera on a Pixel 3, I'm not considering switching and there's a community that doesn't quite get that in the same way, and they're very vocal. So, I don't know. I'm always really... You know. The thing is, I was going to say, I don't necessarily think that this is a YouTube problem. Mm-hmm. It is a large audience problem. Yeah. Right? So, like, I have been in some situations where I have shows with larger audiences than others, and they get different reactions in different ways. You know, like... I have some shows that are not necessarily as purely focused on Apple. They they talk about maybe technology or creativity as a whole. And that's where I see a little bit more of the, like, what's wrong with you? Android's better. Windows is better. 
right. uh, you should use that. So it does happen, but it's like it's the law. I think it's the law of la- larger audiences as opposed to just like there being a problem with YouTube commenters. Yeah, no, you're completely right. It, it's that podcast audiences are a bit more self-selecting. They're there. They're they more refined be, yeah. in a way. <laughs> they're right? better. Like, I mean, typically. there's no YouTuber audience here. There's just podcasters listening. So let's just say it, they're better. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. It depends on... on I think that in general, niche audiences are better than large audiences. Right. Though right. there are a ton of caveats to that, but I, I just think that in general, having a niche audience um, is great. Which is why at Relay FM, we effectively just try to cater to niches. That's 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 what we built our business on. Is what makes us happy. There is like a part like we have like three pillars to our company, and one of them is obsessive. And that is like, that's what niches are. People that really care about a niche, they are obsessive about that thing. Having done so many episodes of so many shows, have any of them gone, uh, you know, quote unquote viral in the way a video does? Like, has it ever happened that an audio file has spread like wildfire? No, we have episodes that for some reason might get a lot more downloads. You know, it can be anywhere from 10 to 100% more, Mm -hmm. right? Like it just... But it's 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 reliant on a specific thing pulling people in as opposed to a virality. Yeah. A 90-minute audio file cannot go viral. It's why it's strange what Serial did. Uh, the, the way that that became as popular as it did, um, most people don't realize how much that's an anomaly in podcasts and won't ever become the typical podcast story. No, I mean, there are a lot of stories of, I don't even think, personally, I don't think that Serial went viral in the way that we usually consider it. Mm. It spread widely via word of mouth, right? which is a very different thing to here is a viral video, because like, they have a lot of the same makeup to them, but I consider it different. Yeah. Because like, a viral video is like, here is this one thing, watch it where a podcast series like Serial is, here is a 12-episode podcast series, which you should check out. Yeah, I think, you should, I think you're going to like this. You should check it out. Yeah, it's like Tyler Storman, the YouTube creator. He's, he's gone viral, just him. <laughs> right, yeah. Him, his yeah, YouTube yeah. channel is now viral. Yeah, that doesn't, doesn't happen, sense, right? Yeah. Like, people's YouTube channels don't go viral. They're, like, a specific piece of content does. And it wasn't that, like, episode four of Serial was viral and that was all anybody checked out. They listened <laughs> from weird. the beginning, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's, like, it's a slightly different thing, but I think that it is, it shares some of that stuff because it's all word of mouth based, but it was just, like, people will be like, I think this is really good. I think you might like it too. You should check it out. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what happened. Yeah. It's the, the blessing and the challenge of podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's the best people show up, but there's less of them. There's a lot less of, there's a lot less of them. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad that they were all here, and I'm glad that you could join me today, Mike. I really appreciate the conversation. Pleasure. Pleasure.